All right. This is the story of the Bible. This is God's story. It's the story that you and I live in right now at this moment in human history. This is our journey this year to learn the story of God, the story that's presented in the Bible from cover to cover to see the continuity of the story, the theme of the story, the hero of the story, and our place in the story. And periodically, we'll be rerunning that video at the beginning of uh, sermons just to remind us this is what we're after. We're after learning this beautiful story of God and what it has to do with my life tomorrow and why the world around me is the way it is. Well, we are in the introduction again this week and going to be in the introduction for this week and two more Sundays. It'll be Genesis 12 is where we really kick off chapter one of the story and begin the narrative. And so in so many ways, the scene is being set, characters are being introduced, themes are being introduced, and the worldview, the the world around us, the, the reason why it is the way it is, is being introduced to us in some very real practical and theological ways. So we're going to start in Genesis 3 today. Now, If you're somewhat familiar with the Bible, you know where we're going today. This is the fall. If you've noticed uh, in your worship guide, the sermon notes, the title of today's message is The Fall of the Kingdom. Now, what a depressing sermon title. Uh, I was tossing it around between three, and that was probably the, the happiest of them all. But the reality is this, that you and I live in a world that's uh, influenced by darkness and evil. And there's no way to get around that reality. And so for today and really the next two Sundays, we're going to be looking at this, um, this darkness that shrouds our lives, the evil that encompasses us, that, that as the Bible describes, is crouching like a lion waiting to devour us at every turn. This is where a lot of our anxieties come from and our depression and a lot of our mistakes and this, um, this idea that we live in a fallen world. The fallenness of man begins in an event in the garden. However, it takes several chapters to fully unfold the ramifications of that, uh, that fracture right there, okay? And so we're going to be looking at it today. We'll walk through the flood. I mean, what a dark time in human history, the flood. I mean, we tend to paint that with rainbows and animals and sunny skies, and we forget that before all that stuff happens, it was like mass genocide. People died. Bodies were floating. It was, it was really a dark scenario, And then we'll end with the Tower of Babel before we get to chapter 12 of Genesis. So as we approach this story today, we're we're really on the cusp of something um, catastrophic in the human experience. That what's going to unfold in Genesis 3 is really going to be a fracture that will extend itself well beyond this event. Uh, If you're any Ice Age fans in the room, it's, it's the squirrel who's trying to dig into and get plant the acorn, and all of a sudden there's this in the ice, and there's a fracture that starts and begins to unfold. And then, yeah, and it either starts or ends the ice age, I can't remember, but anyway, how it just begins with this small fracture, but the whole thing comes undone. Literally like a string on a garment that you, you just pull on, and all of a sudden, before you know it, the whole thing's coming unraveled. The goodness, the very goodness of God's creation begins to become unraveled in this event in human history, the fall of Genesis 3. Well, we're going to pick up with the story here in just a second. And as we begin to think about the world around us and the darkness that we exist in and live within, I think that we can all be real honest with ourselves. Um, I mean, just, just on a light note, the fact that we're all wearing clothes today 
is evidence that we live in a fallen and dark world. You, you know that, right? Like, I'm thankful you, you wore clothes today, and you're hopefully thankful I wore clothes today, but like just that alone, like no other creature on earth does that. You don't see dogs walking around trying to hide themselves, right? We are, in our human experience, evil is very real to us, and it, when it's not cold outside, warrants the reason why we wear clothes and shroud ourselves. We're gonna see that come out of the story today. Um, the news headlines, I mean, go to all the big ones um, from our life experience, you know, 9-11, um, the, the, the school massacres, the theater massacres, Sandy Hook Elementary. We have these tangible reminders around us that the world we live in, right, is fractured. It's not right. And in those realities comes a lot of anxiety. Parents, like, let's just be honest. First day of kindergarten, it's nerve-wracking sending our kids out into this fallen world. Those of you who've raised kids and sent them off to college, first day of college, uh, maybe some of you who have had, like, daughters that you've walked down the aisle and you've given them over to be married, like, those are anxious moments because we're very aware. As pretty as we want to make those moments, right, as much as we want to decorate them up, that we're literally sending our kiddos off into a dark and fallen world. Well, chapter three begins with a description of the serpent setting apart the serpent from any other creature in humanity. Now, we get further descriptions of the serpent, and and he actually gets a name, the name Satan, in the story. But early on, Um, The the important part of this story is just to understand he's set apart. Even though he's described as a creature, don't think of him as just an object of God's creation. The very first verse says, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field the Lord God had made. Now, that's not a way of saying the snake has an IQ. It's just saying, listen, Satan presented himself as a serpent. Don't just place him with other objects in creation. He was crafty. We're going to see how he literally begins to craft his own story here in the midst of God's story. So the rest of verse 1 begins a conversation between the serpent and the woman. And he said to the woman, this is the serpent, did God actually say? Now stop right there. What is he questioning right now? He's questioning what God said. Not questioning anything else about God's character. Simply starting with an innocent question. What did God actually say? Now this is going to begin a slippery slope towards literally questioning God's character. But just keep in mind, it begins with the question of, what did God say? We've got a ringtone or something going off. You need to take that? Go ahead. It's fine. It doesn't bother me at all. My message? Oh, you're recording and playing it back. Yeah, that's awesome. Back on, see how we're always trying to create our own story in the midst of other people's stories? Okay, perfect. This is what's happening here in the story. Uh, literally, yeah, Eve's phone is going off. And so anyway, she takes the call, it's serpent, and he says, and he's, question, <laughs> and he's questioning, Eve, did God really say? Now, so much happens after we begin to ask those seemingly innocent questions about what God says. I mean, we live in a culture that is keen on questioning what God says. And it begins with attacking the very things he said. Before his character ever comes into question, right, if we begin to question the things that God said, then what ensues from there is a slippery slope of beginning to question everything about God if we can somehow question what he says. This is why in 
in Christianity, as citizens of God's kingdom, we do hold the words of God in, in, in high reference. You know, we're not, we're not after questioning what God says. We're after just hearing it as God's people. If we ever move into a mode, which we're in a culture right now that has begun about probably 120, 130 years ago to really like diligently question the words of God. Did he actually say that? And then what follows, we see in this, this early account, is the questioning of God's character itself. So he begins with, did God actually say? Here's what he says. You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. Now that question has an answer. What's the answer? No. That would have been a very simple answer for Eve to respond. Better yet, it would have been a great opportunity for Adam, as we saw last week, the leader in this whole deal, to step in and go, no, God didn't say that. That's not what happens. They allow this questioning of what God says to go on. Did God actually say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? No, that's not what God said. And the woman said to the serpent, instead of saying, no, it's not what God said, she repeats what God said partially. We, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. So far, so good. But then she adds to it, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now, now here's what has just happened in humanity. God's story is unfolding, and the serpent approaches the characters and introduces a new story, a new way to look at things, a new way to look at God, to question what God says and not hold it as absolutely true. And now Eve has begun to write her own story. As soon as she begins to add to and manipulate the truth, she's literally beginning to try to write her own story. We learn so much from her response. She adds the phrase, you shall not touch it. It's not what God said. How many times we're in this, this really weird um, modern world of mysticism and, um, and, and a place where we don't like to um, embrace absolute truth, but we are intrigued by spirituality. And, uh, and so, like, we don't want to be a people who says we can count on God's word to be true, absolutely, it's what God said, but we love this idea of spiritual experience and God talks to us. So we, what happens is when you combine those two things, we get into this world where we make up things that God says. God told me to do this. Now, we can go extreme. Like, there was a group of people in a Volkswagen who, I think they got arrested maybe in Houston, Texas. They were on their way from California to Florida to meet Jesus for the second coming. And God said, get naked and get in a Volkswagen. I feel like seven or nine of them or whatever and drive to Florida. Do you remember that story? It's been over a, I just made up my own story. I don't know. It happened, like, I think 10 or 12 years ago, right? And so people make up, God said, do this. And I had this friend early on, I won't name him, but anyway, um, he was notorious for doing this. Like, uh, he would test God um, all the time. Like, you know, if uh, uh, I'm going to flip this quarter, and if it lands on head, God wants me to go jump off that building. If it lands on tails, he wants me to go to class. I mean, just random stuff. Like, how do we, we don't get to make up what God says. Now, those are exaggerated stories, but we, right, we live in a culture that's really good at that. It's saying, even in our Christendom, saying, I think God's telling me to do this without checking it against what like, God actually said. Like, we don't like when people speak on our behalf or misrepresent us, right? I mean, we're, we'll protect that. That's not what I said. Yet, we do it to God all the time. 
And this is what Eve is doing. She's literally writing her own, this is actually what God said. Now, look at what happens here in verse 6. Actually, let's read the rest of 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This is the serpent's response to the woman. And so he says, hey, you're not going to die. Here's why God doesn't want you to eat from the tree. When you eat of it, your eyes are going to be open and you're going to be like God. Now, you see where we went from questioning what God said to questioning God's character? Now what's the serpent saying about God? God's a liar. You see how crafty he is? He started with just questioning. Are you sure that's exactly what God said? And now he's at a point where he's just quoting God and saying, that's not true. You're not going to die. Why would God say such a horrible thing to you? And in fact, God just doesn't want you to be like him. Now, Eve is going to respond in verse 6. So, now these phrases, I think, are incredibly significant. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, I mean, we're, we're good, right? Like to go out and eat lunch people. We're, we're, we're Americans. We, we appreciate our food. We're a culture that... That food has become a hobby. We know what it means to see something that's pleasing to the stomach and go after it and spend way too much money for it. His first thing is Eve sees it. She's like, well, that's going to feel good in my stomach. That's pleasing for food. It's not just going to sustain me. It's going to, I mean, that's like, that's like a tempura roll. I mean, that's, I'm going after that. That's good stuff. That's for the sushi folks. Okay, so, and then... The tree was desired to make one wise. So a delight to the eyes, I skipped that, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. So everything about why she moves forward is appealing to her flesh. It's gonna be good for my stomach. Like, it's pretty. Like, it just looks good. I wanna be up close to it. I wanna hold it. And not only that, it's gonna make me wise. This is the first account of what we call justifying our sin. Okay, she's spinning it. She's looking at all the things that are good so that she can justify it, right, and ignore the things that are bad. Now, we are, I mean, we're pros at this in the American culture, aren't we? I mean, how many of us have just made bad financial decisions based on this principle we just read about? Went and impulse purchased something, maybe a car, maybe even a house, maybe even like lunch. You just gave in and splurged on a meal and you spent more money than you should have. Like, we are good at justifying, talking about, like, describing to ourselves all the good that we're going to get from this. It comes with a warranty, right? And we justify it, and we go after it, and we, we make these impulse decisions, knowing all along it's not a wise decision. We're pros at justifying sin. This is what she does. She spends it. Now, Verse 7 is just, I don't even want to read it once we begin to understand what it actually means. So the end of verse 6, she took the fruit and she ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then verse 7 describes something incredibly horrible. Now we're complacent to this because we grew up in a world where our parents told us, you know, um, pretend to be better than you actually are. Um, wear clothes, straighten up, look sharp, put your shoulders back, increase your posture, right? We were taught how to pretend like nothing is wrong. Something is incredibly wrong when we get to verse seven 
And it says that the eyes of both were open and they knew that they were naked. Like that is a very, very uh, important verse in this story. Do you remember how chapter two ends? The very last thing God says when creation is very good. When he stops and goes, okay, boom, this is perfect. What's the very last thing he says in verse 25 of chapter two? The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Like that's how God says you know this is very good. There's no reason to hide from each other. There's no reason to hide from me. In verse seven of chapter three, everything goes incredibly wrong. At this point in human history, there is a fracture set in motion and literally a shadow of another kingdom is cast forward over humanity. It's what the psalmist will describe in Psalm 23, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Okay, that's not just describing an event of depression. We typically read that at funerals, okay? It's a description of our existence. We live under the shadow of death. And literally that shadow was cast at this moment over humanity. It's the reason for our anxieties. It's the reason why we don't trust people. It's the reason why we don't really allow ourselves to be known. I mean, even in the context of marriage, I'm finding that there's, there's a sense of wanting to protect and pretend between people. And verse eight begins this unfolding. So we're gonna see everything that God created very good about the purposes of man is undone here. Verse eight, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. This is describing a relationship with God that's not necessarily casual, but it is definitely very intimate and real, okay? It's the idea that God is walking in face-to-face relationship with man, that when he wakes up in the morning, he can expect to get to talk to God, and God would talk back, and there would be fellowship, okay? So God enters the scene of the story, right, doing his part. Problem's not with God. The problem's with Adam and Eve. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. So when we first hear that Adam and Eve hide themselves with, with these garments, we think about them hiding from each other, which there's a little bit of that. But, but over that, right, there's a, there's a deeper sense that they're actually trying to hide themselves from God. And literally, they're, they're not only just hiding their, their bodies, they're hiding behind trees. They're hiding, right, just completely trying to be hidden from God. And so verse nine says, but the Lord God called to the man and the woman. I love this. It's kind of this rhetorical question, kind of bringing the truth up to the surface. Where are you? Verse 10, he said, this is man, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Verse 11, he said, who told you that you were naked? That's just a very profound question. Remember when, when God created, man had the knowledge of what was good. It was the knowledge of what was not good that man didn't have. And so man is hiding himself here. So with this kind of rhetorical question, God is calling up to the surface, right? Now you know what's not good. The fact that you're hiding from me tells me that you now know what is not good. 
So he says, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree in which I commanded you not to eat? Verse 12, the man said, this is another part of the human experience, the, the, uh, the blame game, the shift of responsibility. Uh, the man said, the woman you gave me, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate it. Come on, that was a weak attempt at owning your sin. I mean, he admitted to eating it, but he was saying, you know, she gave it to me. And then verse 13, the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? And she blames the serpent. The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And, and, and is that the reality? Was the serpent involved? Yes. But when Eve responded with twisted truth, she began to participate in that. And literally, right, they deceived themselves. They exchanged what God had for them for what the serpent was, serpent was offering. Now, what's going to happen now, and unpacking um, the rest of this uh, chapter, we're going to make it through 21. God's going to say, here are the way things are going to be now. Okay? So before we even read it, what we need to understand is God says, I'm the one writing this story. And he's not saying to Adam and Eve, things may go this way from time to time. He's not saying to Adam and Eve, hey, don't be surprised if some of this happens. He's saying, this is the way the story is going to unfold. Adam and Eve and serpent, just so you don't forget whose story this is, let me just lay out for you what's about to happen for humanity. And so he begins with the serpent. So he reminds the serpent, hey, I know you're crafty. This is my story. I get the final word. This is what he says to the serpent. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman. Now, he's basically overviewing the human struggle with sin, temptation, evil, the ploy of Satan to continue to derail humanity from this point forward. And he's describing it as enmity. There's going to be a struggle. And he describes the struggle. He says, in between your offspring and her offspring, he shall, okay, this is the he is referring to the offspring of Eve, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And just this just kind of just imagery of the struggle between man and Satan from here forward, that, that the serpent is going to be nipping at the heel of humanity from this point forward. This will happen thematically. It will happen, you know, in, in, in all kinds of ways, metaphorically. It'll actually happen really to the Israelites while they're walking through the desert. Like there's a real snake that comes out of the sand behind this crowd walking desert and, and strikes them on the hill and kills them, this very poisonous snake. And the remedy that God offers is, he says to Moses and the Israelites, hey, take a, fashion a serpent on a stick, like make a, a bronze statue or image of this uh, serpent, raise it up, and when people cast their eyes on it, they'll be healed from that snake nipping at their heels. And then remember what Jesus says in John 3, before 3.16, in this conversation, he says, just like the serpent was raised up in the wilderness as the remedy for the serpent nipping at the heels, what does he say? So the son of man must be lifted up. And then he goes on to say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. You see how this is, this is God saying this is what is gonna happen. The serpent is gonna continue to try to take man down by nipping at his heels, like craftily sneaking around trying to take man out. But there is coming one from Eve, 
a descendant of Eve who will have the final word and will crush the head of the serpent. So in the midst of all this despair and darkness and evil running rampant on the earth, right, God is inserting this little, little glimmer of hope. Now it's gonna, get, it's gonna grow really dim before the hope begins to brighten, which is what we saw playing out in that video. I mean, let's just be honest, like, Noah's Ark, that's a really dim story. Like, if you look for the hope in that, it's hard to see. It's just a little sliver of hope. But in the midst of the struggle that's going to play out, God says, this is going to be a shadow cast, but it's not without hope. And so then he says to Eve, we spent time on these last week. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time here. To the woman, he said, surely, I will surely multiply your pain in childbirth. Okay, so before the fall, women were giving birth to kids. And it was mostly a beautiful process. It's not saying that maybe there wasn't some pain, but now pain is gonna be multiplied, okay? Uh, Let's don't have that discussion, men, with the women about who can tolerate more pain. I just don't wanna know. Like, I'm just gonna say, women, you'd win that, that, that challenge. The ability to tolerate pain, at least in that moment of childbirth. And the scriptures are explaining to us that because as a result of the fall, it's not just gonna be painful to multiply and give birth, Pain is gonna be multiplied here. Ladies, would you agree? This is absolutely true of the human experience. There's no way to get out from underneath that shadow, is there? So he says, I will multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you shall bring forth children. And then this phrase, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you, okay? So remember, what was very good in creation is now becoming undone after the fall. So we saw last week that man was created to lead, right? This leadership role, that that woman was created with this complimentary fellowship role, those weren't a result of the fall. Like the leader who leads before the fall is the man who lays down his life for his family. He is a humble servant leader, a, a man in which the family gladly and joyfully follows his lead. This is describing something else. And just to show you how dark this, this phrase is, I want you to see something. So here's what God says. So we're still in chapter three, the end of 16. Your desire shall be for your husband. This isn't a good desire. And he shall rule over you. This is not a good leadership description. This is how we know it. If you go right to the next chapter, which we're gonna do over the next few weeks more specifically, uh, Cain and Abel, there's, there's murder, okay? So sin is running rampant. And if you cross over to, to chapter four, verse six, God describes sin this way. Okay, so this is chapter four, six, just a glimpse. The Lord says to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, look at this. Sin is crouching at the door. Okay, we know from later explanations, he's, just, he's comparing sin to a lion. There's a lion waiting around the corner, hiding, seeking to what? To devour you and kill you and steal you and destroy you. Sin is crouching. So that's what's being described here. But look what the words are used. It's crouching at the door. It's desire is for you. That's not good desire, is it? That's the kind of desire that women are gonna have post-fall for men. A, A deceptive, manipulative, even destructive desire now. Its desire is for you, but you must what? 
rule over it. So in the same way that we as, as human beings are supposed to rule over our sin and not allow it to rule us in a negative way, now men are taking that leadership role, abusing it, and ruling over women. That's post-fall. That's how those, that beautiful complementary relationship of man and woman has now begun to become unraveled. And men are abusing their strength and power over women. You're not gonna find a culture since the human, since, since traceable human history has been recorded where this has not been true. On different levels, right? I mean, even in the leave it to beaver, you know, the middle of the 20th century, this was going on. This unhealthy desire from, from a woman for a man, even a destructive desire at times, and then a man who, who rules over in an oppressive way the woman. And what, what, we're, what we're seeing here is that this, we, we live under the shadow where these beautiful, intrinsic, God-given roles have now been jaded and fractured. It's why when you go to a wedding now and somebody reads from Ephesians 5, women submit to your husbands and husbands Love your wives and lay your life down for them. You know, lead them. You, you hear those and, and then you, sometimes, oftentimes, the pastor then tries to explain God's word in a way to say, well, that's not really what he was saying. What he was really saying was this. Does that sound familiar? We feel the need to say, oh, it could have been what God is saying. That's not healthy. It's because we live in a fallen, dark world under the shadow of death. It was supposed to be a beautiful thing. All right. That was just to the women, uh, to the man, Adam, verse 17. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Okay, stop there. He is, God is in no way letting Adam off the hook here by saying, well, you listen to your wife. He's, he's really coming down hard on Adam right here. And here's how we know it. The first thing he says to Adam is because you listen to your wife, okay? Now, it almost sounds like because your wife deceived you, I know you didn't see it coming, Adam, but, I mean, she's crafty too. And, you know, this is the same word, like this Hebrew word gets translated into Greek as the word akuo. It's the word Jesus uses in Matthew 7 when he says in verse 21 that uh, whoever hears these words of mine and does it is like a wise man who builds his house on the solid rock when the storm comes the house will stand. And then later on he says, but the man who hears my words and doesn't do them, okay, that's the word that we're, we're hearing here. To hear it to the point of action is what Jesus is saying. And so he's not letting man off the hook because, you know, because the woman was crafty. Adam, you're gonna have to suffer too. He's saying, not only did you hear what she said, you bought into it. You were there with her. You heard the whole conversation. And not only because you heard it, but because you listened to it. You bought into her story. Because of that, he goes on to describe the curse over man. Because you listen to the voice of your wife and you have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat all the days of your life. This is the first uh, really introduction of pain itself. Pain is a result of the curse. It's exemplified and amplified in childbearing, but life is painful, right? I mean, our little toddler kiddos, we try to keep them from pain all the time. We're prone to pain. We become adults, and right, pain is still there. Just getting out of bed when you hit the 30s, right, is painful sometimes. Pain is part of the curse. 
But very specifically, pain is part of, for man, the description of work. In pain you shall eat, you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, from out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and dust you shall return. Um, right now we, we live in a time in human experience where we um, emphasize careers to the point where it becomes our identity. And we, we encourage people, go find, go, if you don't love what you do, then you need to quit your job and go do something you love, right? I mean, we, that's popular sentiment in our culture today. Even if you're doing something that is remotely close to what you love, there are gonna be days when that alarm clock goes off that you just wanna roll over and go back to bed. Why? Because it's work. It's painful. That's why they give us money for doing it, right? I mean, this the American dream, you can be anything you want to be. Go be a pro athlete, and we're going we're gonna to build our education system to emphasize athletics because we can all be Texas Rangers. No, you can't, right? And, I mean, as hard as I want to try, I'm just not going to make the NFL or any professional sport outside of maybe curling. That require, I don't even know I can ice skate that well. Work is a constant reminder, men, that we're living under the shadow. It's painful. It's painful because of the curse. It's why we try to vacate every year on some level, right? Why do we do vacations? Because we're longing for work to be done. So many people are looking forward to retirement when the work is done. Then we get there and don't know what else to do because we've been giving ourselves to it for so many years. This human experience this human experience is to understand work. You can, you can work hard at life, you can slack at it. It's still painful. Even if you're super ambitious and you steward your, your resources well and you're able to retire early, the first day of retirement you're gonna wake up and, and life is gonna be painful. It's still gonna be painful to get out of bed and go to the breakfast table and eat your cereal. Like there's this constant reminder Maybe not the work we're doing right now, but the work we did for the last 40 years has taken, you know, you can't get out from underneath the shadow. I love how God interjects grace in the midst of our fallenness and our sin, and this is where we're gonna end, with the glimmer of hope, okay? It's dark, it's, it's a fallen world, yet Jesus tells us to be what? A light in the midst of a fallen world. Just like a, a city on a hill, though it doesn't take up a lot of space in a dark countryside, you can't hide it. You and I are supposed to be that shimmer, that glimmer, that glimpse, that small sliver of hope to a fallen world. But in verse 21, look at what God does for Adam and Eve. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins, and he clothed them. Now, this is God being gracious. If you remember back to the last couple weeks in our, in our sermons, we, we saw very specifically how man was created with a very inerrant, specific design, primarily to bear the image of God, okay? At the fall, man begins to bear the image of the serpent, and literally, we're gonna see in just a few chapters, the image of himself. So that's coming undone. Uh, man was told to multiply and have dominion over the earth. Just the multiplying part has become incredibly painful to the point where women will lose their lives in childbirth. It's so painful. That's coming undone. 
this idea that man was supposed to have dominion over the created world. Now man is becoming subject to the created world, and it's coming undone. But the most important part, or I would say the climax of all creation we saw last week in chapter 2, is this idea you and I were created for community, like, like real, deep, connected community. Not we're going to hang out and have a club community, but like literally, like my life is going to bleed into your life community. That's why so much of the narrative is about how man was hiding from woman. Just that idea that we live protected, guarded lives is a result of this fall. I mean, can you really be in relationship with somebody with the facade up? It's our, it's our hope here at Solid Rock for life groups that, you know, we have so many things we hope happens in life groups, but it is the place to know people and to be known. It's hard to do that here on Sunday mornings, right? I mean, really, it's really vulnerable. But to be in a smaller group of, of believers and to just, just say, you know what, I'm done. I'm done, I'm exhausted. Here's who I am. And layer by layer, we begin to expose ourselves and undo in the Christian community what was done in the fall. But not only that, the relationship with God that was severed here by this desire to hide. So let me just share with you from the New Testament our hope, and then we'll be done. Ephesians 3, chapter 2, describes what it, what it, this living in darkness, okay? So just a few verses from Ephesians 2. We'll throw these on the screen. Paul says this, you were dead in your trespasses and sin. Does that sound familiar? What happens when we sin? Death enters. Paul says, you were dead in your trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Paul is just describing what happened in the garden and saying, you're walking in this experience too. You're walking in a dark and fallen world And in verse three, he still doesn't give us any room to blame it on Eve. Verse three, among whom we all once lived in the, now remember what Eve did, how she justified the sin? It was, right? It was good for the stomach. It was pleasing to the eyes and it was desirable to make her wise. It was appealing to the flesh. Among once we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our bodies and our minds. We've, we've jumped in the same thing that Eve jumped in. We bought into the lie of another person's story, and we began to try to write our own story with our life experiences. And we were by nature children of wrath. Romans 5, the whole chapter is beautiful. I encourage you to read it. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. Paul labors to say, to verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's what we just read, and Death through sin, we just read that, and so death spread to all men. Because why? Because all men sin. This shadow that has been perpetually cast over mankind, we've all participated in it. We've, we have perpetuated what Adam and Eve did. Continue reading down, just I'll pick it back up in verse 19. For as by the one man's disobedient, many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. What's Paul saying? There is one coming to rescue. The, the way that this whole thing is gonna be fixed is not with a civil rights movement, a cleaner earth, uh, equality for men and women, the right to vote, living in a democracy. The, this is not the hope for the nations. The hope is gonna be in one man, 
And the way sin, sin fractured humanity through one man's decision, hope is coming through one man, a rescuer. Our king is coming. I love how Paul writes this in Colossians chapter one, just two verses. Listen to this. Thinking about all we've talked about today, look at how Paul sums this up in Jesus. Remember, we're looking for the the glimmer of hope in the midst of hopelessness. Paul says this, he, being God, has delivered us from the domain of what? Darkness. God himself is calling what we live in this human experience the domain of darkness, what David will call in Psalm 23, the valley of the shadow of death. God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and he has transferred us to what? The kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption. That's the undoing of everything that was undone. That's what redemption literally means. God reckoning all, of, all things. The same way God came to man in the garden and reckoned what was wrong, called everything into account, God's gonna do that. And not only that, through Christ, he's gonna redeem all of this that's gone wrong. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. What was done in the garden, right? The introduction of, of sin and death. Literally, that Jesus was gonna undo the power of sin and death by taking on our sin dying and taking it to the grave and resurrecting. He undid the power of death. He took his heel and he stomped the serpent's head and killed him and said, this is my story. I know you think you've hijacked it. You think you're writing your own script. And he says that to every one of us. This is my story. Praise God. I'm a horrible story writer. I am. I make horrible decisions for life. The reason I have so much insight into Eve's sin is because I'm just like her. Quick to say things that God doesn't say and to write my own story and to try to manipulate life to be like I want it to be and to find disappointment, embarrassment, and shame in all my sin. Praise God that he has sent a rescuer to rescue my life. I want to end today just by praying for you. Um, if you're, I don't know where you are. I really don't. I know some of you, and so I kind of know your journey, but a, a large portion of the folks in here today, I don't really know you. You know, I just know the you that's kind of protected. And so I don't know where you are. Maybe this whole idea of God and, and religion is something you're kicking the tires on. You're pushing back. You're like waiting for God to prove himself to you. And maybe today God just showed you a worldview that resounded. And you're like, yes, that makes sense. God's word, the most prehistoric piece of it, makes perfect sense. It's true. And for the first time, you realize there is a God to be trusted. And I have rebelled against him. I have participated in this. And maybe for the first time, you're feeling that conviction and that shame that Adam and Eve were feeling, and they wrapped themselves up with garments and tried to hide. Maybe you're feeling that right now. Can I tell you there is a hope for you? Jesus is the rescuer. He wants to take all that guilt and shame from you. In the same way that God provided garments for Adam and Eve, Jesus wants to provide for you garments, like garments of righteousness. This is a beautiful part of the prodigal son's story is God puts a ring on his finger and then takes a robe and wraps him in a robe. This dirty, rebellious child, God would say that to you. Let me clothe you. 
in a righteousness that allows you to be real and transparent, to experience community and relationship with me. It's all available to you today by believing on Jesus as the rescuer. Let me pray for you as the worship team comes back up.